0: Good morning. Good to see you all today. We are going to continue the conversation. We started last week looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, actually just a few verses in that chapter, but it's like I got rich from burning the money. Kevin often tells me that I need to choose less obscure cultural references If I had run this one by him, he likely would have told me to axe it, which maybe that's why I didn't run it by him. I just can't help myself. Watashi Wa, a pop rock band from the early 2000s, I know some of you know them, but they released a song actually earlier this year that had the following lyric. Joy after joy after pain, maybe it's all the same. It's like I got rich from burning the money. Rich via destroying the very thing that makes one rich. It doesn't make a lot of sense unless our definition of richness or wealth undergoes a dramatic shift. What does it mean to be rich as followers of Jesus? And I think at the end of 1 Timothy, at the end of chapter 6, Paul actually in a way, provides a response to that question, and for starters, the answer is that true wealth is not understood in the constant accumulation of stuff. In fact, Paul suggests that that pursuit would actually be rather empty, a meaningless, Endeavor, if you put hope in wealth," he says, you are sure to be disappointed precisely because wealth is so uncertain. Or as Jesus insists, moth and rust are going to destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, as Paul has been helping Timothy navigate some issues involving false teachers in the church in Ephesus, we we discover that the issue wasn't only what was being taught by the false teachers, but the fact that pride and greed were some of the guiding forces at work. And so right at the end of this letter, he has a strong warning for those who follow Jesus, which could be summed up in this way. Give care to how you view and interact with wealth. As we think about the Apostle Paul's words in this chapter, we actually sense some resonances with things that are taught throughout our scriptures, especially maybe in a place like Ecclesiastes. Maybe you'll you'll hear some of these resonances. I want to read a lengthy section from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. He who loves money There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Now, if you remember, at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes chapter one, the author says sort of as this verbal resistance, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if all is vanity, that certainly would include wealth. And presumably it is vanity because it won't last. So we've read here you get more, but then you have more obligations. So it is in the end a net zero. Additionally, who knows if If the person you leave the stuff to in the end is going to be wise with it, it actually may be frivolously wasted, and then what's the point? We pick it up in verse 18 of that chapter. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Presumably, the answer from the author of Ecclesiastes is to enjoy what you have now and and, Attempt to understand everything as a gift from the hands of God. I think we've probably all heard those proverbial stories of the child receiving or maybe buying an article of clothing, maybe a new pair of fancy tennis shoes, maybe like the ones I have on now. But they love them so much, want to make them last. How can I ensure these fancy tennis shoes won't wear out? I know, I won't wear them. I'm going to keep them in pristine condition in the box they arrived in, and then, of course, predictably and tragically, the shoes are outgrown by the time the child finally decides to wear them. Or maybe in my case, trends change, and and what was purchased is no longer in style. That's actually something I frequently have to deal with um, as a guy who likes to keep close as long as humanly possible. I've said this before, but I think the worst part of those social media features that offer that unprompted stroll down memory lane, like, hey, check out this photo that you were in on this day eight years ago, the worst part for me is, and this is, I wish I could say it only happened once, but it seems to be a routine. It's not uncommon for me to see that photo and look down And discover that I'm wearing the exact same outfit that I was on this day a decade ago. And I should be embarrassed by that. Unfortunately, I'm not. I unfortunately wear it as a badge of honor, much to my wife's dismay. But but seriously, what a tragedy to protect something so long, hoping to make it last, fearing it will be lost if used so long that it's rather useless by the time you decide to open it up. And any benefit, the purpose in acquiring that item in the first place, any benefit is completely lost. And reflecting on realities like that, the author of Ecclesiastes ponders why in the world would we cling to stuff, as Jesus says, when when those items and objects can be destroyed by a variety of natural processes. Why cling to wealth when thieves may break in and steal, or hackers in the digital age may hack in and steal? Possessions and and finances are useful and gifts to be enjoyed, but there is much, much more to life than the money or the stuff we own. And so Paul, in line with other biblical authors, insists, do not put your hope in wealth. It's uncertain. It won't fix or solve your problem. Sure, it will address some very real and felt needs today, but it's not going to fix the core of the ache inside of us, at least not in a lasting way. So instead... Follow the example of the poor widow that Paul highlights in the previous chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, the poor widow who puts her hope in God alone. Follow the example of the poor widow that Jesus highlights in Mark 12, who who gives two copper coins all she has, commended for her faith. Like these mighty examples before us, we put our hope. In God alone. So we return to 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. We read this last week. I'll read it again. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So last week we considered the instruction not to be haughty. Not to trust wealth, but to instead put our hope in God. I want to move on today to consider, but practically, how do we do this? How do we approach our finances in a way that is consistent with the values of God's kingdom? And I think this might be a good beginning place. The only way for us to consistently be moving into a posture where we are trusting God instead of the stuff we have is to first reconsider how we understand wealth in the first place. What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to be rich as participants in God's kingdom? Paul insists we must not become obsessed with with material riches, but instead focus on a different kind of riches. If you are wealthy, Paul says you are to do good with what you have. He seems to say, I don't care about the material possessions you have. What I'm interested in, are you rich in good works? That's a different kind of richness altogether. It isn't quantifiable, at least not in the same way. The benefits of that kind of richness, being rich in good works, the benefits certainly aren't as apparent or obvious, but the benefits are still there. Being rich in good works, moving in generosity, opening our hands to share is actually a path to true wealth that lasts. We become truly wealthy when we are able to open our hands. When we become increasingly dissatisfied with the empty promises of simply possessing for myself. It's like I got rich from burning the money. It's like I found true wealth, joy, and freedom from relinquishing an obsession with that stuff. So this is what we focused on last week. So you may be thinking, oh, we're just through the introduction. And yes, we are. So buckle up. Attachment to wealth has a unique power to damage our souls. Paul explicitly warns here in this chapter, it can even cause us to abandon faith entirely. So he insists care is needed. But as we continue reading this section, we find that just as wealth can have devastating effects if it is left unchecked and used self-indulgently, it can also be a real benefit and blessing to the world around us. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we hold finances, we hold anything we own with an open hand. As I have freely received, I now freely give. If I can see all of life as a gift, I think this becomes a much easier posture to assume. The challenge, though, is that our culture is constantly moving us in the opposite direction. And because of that, I want to suggest that we need practices, at least I do, I need practices or habits that break me out of those ruts of self-indulgent consumption. Again, consumption itself is not evil. In fact, it's necessary. If we cease to consume, we cease to live. We need clothing to wear if we are going to be allowed in any public places, right? In a city like Springfield, the majority of people need some form of transportation because it's not a very walkable city. Consumption, money, even acquisition are not in and of themselves the enemy. Paul insists earlier in this letter, the the enemy is our attitude and our approach to those things. It is the love of money, the obsession with it that steals joy and destroys our health and harms other people. So how do we do this? I think we get that it's important. As we have established and returned to time and time again, our God is a God who champions the cause of the poor. So how do we handle money in a way that is faithful to that God who champions the cause of the poor? How do we avoid letting what is helpful and necessary become something that dominates and controls? And I think the first step in this process is to incorporate practices that simply keep this reality on our minds. So Paul calls his audience, the church in Ephesus, calls them to be generous, and ready to share. Being ready to share requires I think habitual practices that posture your heart in such a way that you can see a need and actually move to respond. Now again these are practices not burdens that I must bear in order to become a good Christian but practices I willingly take on so that I might continue to discover the richness of of life in Jesus Christ. So we practice generosity. We seek to be a generous people. Verse 18, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Now, the immediate, perhaps most obvious benefit of generosity is the person in need who is being helped. But I have experienced and really believe the generosity also benefits the giver in immeasurable ways. Not because we're going to get a one-to-one or, if we're lucky, a two-to-one or maybe even three-to-one return on our investment. No, it benefits the one who is being generous because it nurtures the soul. There's a section in Acts chapter 20 where Paul is instructing the elders of the church in Ephesus, the same church at the center of Paul's concern here in 1 Timothy. And at the end of that speech, Paul says this in verse 35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we keep that in mind, and then look at 1 Timothy 6, where Paul says, in so doing, we store up treasures for the future. This is a means of taking hold of that which is truly life. But again, for many of us, primarily I'm thinking of myself, this requires intentional practices and habits that change us. Remember when I worked at the chocolate factory just down the street and we had a customer and I'm sorry to talk about your work, Kevin. I know you're trying to escape um, on a Sunday morning, but I'm not going to let you. Kevin works at the, the factory I used to work at, but I had a customer come in, bought a lot of chocolate and we had a long conversation. And in that conversation discovered that we both pastored churches in the same tradition. Um, I just also happened to sell chocolate. But it was a great conversation. Um, at the end of it, as he was heading to his car to travel out of state to his home, he handed me five $100 bills. And I was aghast. Um, I tried to refuse, and, and he insisted. We actually had some correspondence after this, and... He explained that this is a practice that he had implemented in his life to form him to be a generous person. Something that didn't come naturally, but he wanted to take it on that he might be shaped in this way. So he had a line item in his monthly budget, a certain amount of money that he would not spend in any other way than to give to somebody he thought was experiencing a need. I get that for a lot in this room, $500 a month is not feasible. It's not for me. What what I would encourage you to consider, and this is just one example, but is there an amount of money I could say this month I'm going to set this aside and I'm going to find somebody who is experiencing a need and I'm not going to spend this in any other way except to bless somebody who has a need. What might a practice like that do in shaping our views, our approach to our finances? I think it's possible that it would begin to loosen our grip. And I I want to stress that this is, I, I am trying to address myself here as much as anybody else in this room. One practice that I have found helpful over the years and I get that this text is not an exploration of this practice, but it's a practice that has a rich tradition in the Jewish faith and, and throughout the history of the Christian church, the practice of a tithe. This, this is something that was sort of hammered into me as a kid. My folks are here, um, and so I, you can just close your ears. This is sort of a, a therapy session for me. No, it was drilled into me as a kid, anything that I did to earn money, mow a yard or shovel snow. It was expected that I would give back a portion of that to the church. And I I was instructed to do this, not because if I do it, I'm going to be blessed with material abundance. Not because if I don't, God is going to bring calamity into my life. But a practice like that specifically, or generosity in general, is not a tool by which we control God or a tool by which I ensure that I'm always going to have the royal flush at the poker table and take home all of the money. Not that I play poker, but you get what I'm saying. I think that can actually be a really unhelpful view of a practice like that, even a destructive way to understand it. It's not a transaction whereby I ensure that I'm going to get blessings in return, blessings of the same kind. Rich Velodis, who pastors in New York, put it this way. He said, over the course of my life, there were times when I generously gave and God blessed me. Then there were times when I didn't generously give and God still blessed me. Generosity is not about controlling God's hand. We can't manipulate God's grace. Generosity is for our maturity. And... That has been true in my experience, of my practice. It's not about getting what I want. The primary benefit is formational. God doesn't need my measly money, but I desperately need to have a love of that money ripped out of my heart. So these are just a couple of examples of practices that... Help keep me, hopefully, not always successfully, but hopefully are moving me in the direction of becoming less and less attached to the stuff that I have. The call to generosity is based, of course, on the generosity of God. Everything we have, anything we enjoy, is a gift from God. It may seem like it's the result solely of hard work or our personal ingenuity, but I think even a Christian view of those things recognizes them as a gift of God. It is all a gift. So to keep a tight fist around what God has given me, I think, would be hypocritical at best. So we want to practice generosity Moving constantly in the direction of being willing to relinquish when prompted what has been given to us in the first place. So we're going to wrap this up. And as we do, I want us to consider this question. Paul in Acts 20 says it was our Lord who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I want us to consider in what ways is it more blessed to give than to receive. And I think it's certainly a more exhaustive list than what I have here, but I think this is a good place to start. In generosity, we begin to put to death our self-centeredness. It's not just about me. Hopefully, we begin to relinquish our love of money, not foregoing economic systems altogether, but we want to remain free from the love of money that in the end destroys my soul and harms other people. And then finally, it helps us to meet real needs of real people that we come into contact with. And why is this the posture we want to be moving in? Because we have been given everything we need in Christ. And as we share, We are blessed. And Paul says we begin to take hold of that which is truly life. It begins to shift our understanding of what true riches, what true wealth really is. Would you stand this morning? We're going to celebrate again. The focus that we approached the table with last week was a reminder of the free gift that we receive at this table, a table that is open a table that we approach and celebrate at, a gift that we can do nothing to earn except to open our hands. And as we receive this gift of life, that which is truly life in Jesus Christ, the bread and the blood, we ask Jesus, change our hearts. Jesus, change my heart. As I freely receive life from you, may I also freely give. I want to say a prayer for us by way of invitation to the table. If you're new or visiting, we invite you to the table of our Lord. The only requirement is that you have a desire to meet with Jesus. If, we have, if you have a desire to meet with Jesus, I believe it is Jesus Himself who is inviting you to share in the abundance of his life. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. You can come forward, receive the elements, take them on your own. When you get to the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and receive the gift of life we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Most loving Father, you will us to give thanks for all things to dread nothing but the loss of you, and to cast all our care on the one who cares for us. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, and grant that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal, and which you have manifested unto us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?